0: Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from We Screenplay. If you've just completed a draft of a script and are wondering what next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals, with incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to. We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their careers. From emerging writers still finding their voice, all the way to Oscar winners. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops offered by We Screenplay. Don't stay stuck, We Screenplay want to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting wescreenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Arc Studio Pro, Arc Studio is the screenwriting software used to create incredible shows and movies, such as the acclaimed Netflix animation Arcane. It has a ton of features designed to unlock your creativity on the page, whether you're a seasoned industry professional or a first-time writer discovering your voice. Arc is all about minimum distraction and maximum ease of collaboration. There's an outlining whiteboard for mapping out your story, automatic draft management for keeping those scripts safe, and it also offers real-time collaboration similar to Google Docs, making it the easiest way to run a professional writer's room or just to write that great idea for a script that you have with a friend. Try it today. Head to arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart, where you can get $30 off a pro account by using the code friends at checkout. Click the link in today's show notes to take your screenwriting to the next level. Hey everyone, a very happy new year to you all. My name's Al Horner and this is Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. We're kicking off 2023 in style today with the one and only Noah Baumbach dropping in for a chat. His latest movie White Noise dropped on Netflix over the holidays and well, how to describe it? Is it a disaster movie? Is it a family drama? A drugged out conspiracy thriller? Or perhaps even a black comedy? Ask the man himself and he'll tell you that it's kind of all of the above and on a personal note for him, something else altogether. Yes, white noise is a dystopian delight that represents the biggest left turn of this acclaimed writer-director's career so far. Since bursting into the spotlight two decades ago, The New Yorker has become renowned for creating these intensely intimate snapshots of American family life. From the Squid and the Whale to 2019's incredible marriage story, His movies are typically small in scale, but big in emotional depth, delving deep into the interpersonal lives of characters who you can't help but fall in love with. At least that's what used to define a Baumbach movie. White noise is the sound of this author stepping boldly out of his comfort zone. It's an apocalyptic adaptation of a novel that till now was thought to be unfilmable. The revered author Don DeLillo's postmodern tome was full of dense prose, lyrical absurdity, and satirical sharpshooting at American hysteria. A lot of the story takes place in a supermarket that's both a community hub and a cathedral to American consumerism. And a large chunk of the movie involves grand CGI depictions of a toxic cloud engulfing a community who descend into panic and lawlessness. All things pretty far removed from the grounded domesticity of Noah's typical storytelling. In the conversation you're about to hear, Noah tells me why now was the right time for such a departure. We talk about how he called on the disorientation of traumatic events in his own life, like 9-11, divorce, and his father's death to shape its foreboding mood. We talk about his love for hiding in the opening scene of his films, an encapsulation of the thematic content to come, and why he chose to make one major change to the novel, involving the character Babette, played by Greta Gerwig, who happens to be his partner. A couple of things to mention, this one was recorded over the phone with Noah dialing in from an undisclosed location, so apologies if the audio takes a minute or two for your ears to adjust to, I do promise it's worth persevering with. It's also worth mentioning of course that this is a spoiler filled conversation, so if you haven't seen White Noise yet, come on you know what to do. Hit pause now, go watch the movie, it's on Netflix, then come back as we dive into every detail of this great film. A big thank you as ever to our Patreon community for helping make this episode possible. Head to patreon.com forward slash script apart if you'd like to get involved there. Okay, with no further ado, this is Noah Baumbach discussing the first draft secrets of White Noise. Thanks for tuning in. Happy New Year once again, guys. 2023, let's make it a good one. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demecky. Hey Noah, welcome to Script Apart. It's a delight to have you with us. I'll be real with you. Ever since I saw White Noise, every time I go to the supermarket, the temptation to break into a little dance—it's pretty intense.
1: There's <laughs> no, no shame in that. You should just do it then.
0: In all seriousness, though, Noah, like uh, White Noise, really has kind of embedded itself in my brain since I caught it over the weekend. I'm really fascinated by it, like not just on its own terms as this brilliantly uh, like daring kind of fever dream style movie, but also just as a Noah Baumbach movie. like I'm captivated by the ways in which it's both a departure from and an extension of your typical storytelling. Um, so I wanted to start off by asking about the significance of the particular moment in your career that white noise arrives in. So like your last film was of course Marriage Story, which I loved. It felt so personal and emotionally bruising to watch, so I can only assume it might have been emotionally bruising to write as well. Um, from interviews I've read, you, you pulled quite heavily from your own life, as all your movies are wont to do, but perhaps more so than ever with that project. Is it a coincidence that you know, you found yourself here, reaching for someone else's material and adapting someone else's story for the first time after Marriage Story? Like Consciously or subconsciously, did you need something different and, and a story that wasn't your own to follow up that, that project?
1: It's that's an interesting question, and I become more aware of these things in retrospect. I mean, I I look back even at other movies in my in my life and career where I realize, oh, I actually was shaking things up in a way I didn't even realize I was shaking things up. Like uh, Francis Ha was one of those where I. I, I had conscious, there were conscious things I wanted to do very differently with that movie. It, in terms of production style, I wanted to make something with very few people and, and in some cases sort of under the radar. I felt like it would, it would create a freedom that I was feeling, that, that I was craving in a way from, from, from traditional filmmaking. Uh, to make movies in a traditional way. But there were also many other things when I look back at the movie and even the movie itself, the cr- creatively that I was also doing that I didn't realize I was doing. So all this is to say my conscious consciously, when I had finished Marriage Story, it was the first time in, in my really in my career that I didn't know what I wanted to make next. And I just naturally found myself when I'm finishing a movie at some point in, in, in the sort of maybe second half of, of, of a, making a movie, I, I start things that I've been musing about or notes I've taken or themes, characters, whatever it is that generally start to rise to the surface and I start to feel like, oh, now I can see the movie. You know, again, it could be ideas, characters, locations. It, it just, you know, I, I there are things that, that I carry around with me that I think, oh, one day I might want to do this, something like this, but I don't yet see it. And usually those start to clarify for me. But with Marriage Story, I I really felt empty for the first time. (laughs) Um, It was both scary and also there was a freeing feeling too that was exciting. But it, it did, the coincidence, as you alluded to, did come that I happened to be rereading White Noise at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020. And I was struck over and over again as I read it. And I would read passages aloud to Greta and say, you just, I can't, who had also read it, you know, many years earlier, how much this not only speaks to the moment in terms of themes and subject matter uh, story, but the tone of it, the tone that you also spoke about, is the fever dream quality of it. Just felt like the world was feeling to me. It was it was capturing a feeling that I had. We all have those days where the world doesn't feel quite real, and often they they can come after traumatic experiences. You know, you know, I I felt it when my father died. This sort of alternate reality of 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 both familiar and unfamiliar and. I was feeling that in a kind of more, maybe low, low boil way, simmer way. And then when the pandemic happened and, and we were in New York city again, and, and suddenly, you know, after we'd been traveling around the world quite a bit um, for marriage story and Greta for little women, we were suddenly, you know, locked down in our apartment. And I, it, it really spoke to that feeling. And I did have that sort of traumatic that, 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 that feeling of trauma and, you know, I mean, we were lucky that we weren't sick or, you know, having, you know, genuine tragedies that, that came from the pandemic, but, but just that feeling of the world feeling strange and unfamiliar and everything around me, my apartment, my things, everything is familiar, but nothing feels like it usually does. And that's what the book really spoke to in me. It felt very personal and i felt like well here's a way for me to express something that feels very personal but do it through this this other other voice this this other this novel
0: that's so interesting what, what, what an incredible time to be be revisiting this novel i mean the the title of the novel alone white noise like it's about disorientation and there was perhaps no more disorientating time in, in sort of history in western society certainly um, than than these last few years you know, I suppose we probably should just address the sort of COVID of it all up front. There's a moment in the film where the, the name of the threat is seemingly updating itself from minute by minute. Like it evolves from being a feathery plume to a billowing cloud to finally the airborne toxic event. Um, the advice from authorities seems to kind of constantly be pinballing during the disaster movie segment of the of the film, much like it was during COVID's onset. And, um, you know, the disorientating nature of COVID-era society carries through in the film. Like, late on in the film, there's a really funny little aside, like a grace note, where there's an announcement over the tannoy in the supermarket in which shoppers are told to disregard a previous announcement and then to regard it again following new information. How did you go about inserting some of that panic and and that disorientation? Like, I suppose, not just of the pandemic, but of the Trump years and social media era society into this book that was, you know, that was written in nineteen. Well, it's released in nineteen eighty five. Presumably, it was written in the years kind of preceding that,
1: right? It, it, no, and and, and and I would add to that, the symptoms keep getting updated as well, which also yeah. was something we were experiencing, um, <laughs> and and seemed to get more surreal and impossible. Um, I mean, the fact that you that one might truly lose their smell and taste, you know, seemed of science fiction, you know, at, at that time. And of course, in the book and, and the movie, you, it's deja vu and, <laughs> you know, uh, what's remarkable about the novel is that all of that was in there. And I was excavating it and putting it in this new setting in this new form and, and finding cinematic analogs for what he was doing in in a, in a very literary way. And the, the supermarket announcement is a good example of that, of, of you know, the, the the supermarket, you know, he in the novel, he'll end a paragraph with just maybe an, a snippet from the television or the radio or the supermarket. Panasonic being a kind of famous one, which comes up later in the book. It's just its own its own sentence. Those things were sort of I felt very available to me from the novel. But then also my task was to to find the, the the movie equivalents and you know of course they they change i mean things that you that you read become very different once you have you know human beings and 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 you know expressive emotional actors you know with faces and noses and ears and mouths saying these things you know and so it does transform it it grounds it in a different way i wanted to maintain you know and find an equivalent sort of elevated reality that the book created so well and but find the movie version knowing that by just by the fact of that that you're going to see these things and 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 these things become real and more tactile that it it grounds it in a way that's different you know when you're reading the kids in the book who are you know hilarious and but they they become representations of kids they're both very recognizable as real kids but also they're literary kids and once you cast these these wonderful kids that i that i did cast who were very sensitive and 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 human it 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 creates another something else and that was something i was always trying to remain aware of that you know the, the things like hearing things in the supermarket, I use some things from the book, but then we also created a kind of character for that, for the supermarket uh, megaphone. Uh, and he, David, David Newman, actually, who choreographed uh, the dance sequence that um, that you might one day imitate in Tesco. Uh, 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 he he um, also, he worked throughout the movie with me on all, on all the scenes, even the scenes that have, Sort of what maybe a much more nuanced choreography, but he also was the voice of the supermarket. <laughs> so he he was uh, he's he's all over the place.
0: And as as different as the film is to your past work, as much as it must have been clear as you kind of contemplated adapting it, that this was going to require you kind of pushing into exciting new territory. I suppose as a director, were you kind of uh, conscious of the ways that you were? Potentially able to take Don's story and meld it with some of your pre-existing preoccupations as a storyteller, like it, it's another family-driven story, for example, which has been a major part of your signature as a filmmaker. Noah was was the family dynamic at the heart of the movie, like a North Star. For you, as you wrote it, like as, as as I watched it, I think I very much imagined that your way into the story, your way of making this near impossible undertaking seem less daunting, might have been kind of, uh, yeah, sort of considering it as a family story, like you've always written. And kind of expanding the world from there.
1: Well, it's it, it's 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 another one of those things that that I, I I could look at retrospectively. I think I just trusted the fact that I responded so strongly to it that that it it it, it was speaking to me, and it was something that I was compelled to adapt. So, mm-hmm. thus, it had to be personal, it had to have some connection to what I've done in the past. Um, uh, And if it doesn't, I don't didn't really matter to me. I just this is something that felt compelling to me. And and, and it was a, a kind of, you know, live wire that I felt I needed to follow. And, and, but, retrospectively, of course, I mean, it it is ultimately a movie about family and a movie, you know, I would say I've always been interested in, as you say, family. And I think specifically, I mean, family dynamics, but family mythologies, too. And the stories we tell ourselves, you know, and how there's both the group dynamic, there's the parent-child dynamic, there's the, you know, the stories our parents tell us about ourselves, and then the unlearning of that that comes with maturity and adulthood in a lot of cases. Um, Squid and the Whale is about that from an adolescent perspective, and Meyerowitz is about that from a grown-up perspective. What DeLillo had created, which I found very interesting, was the family as, in some ways, as a kind of microcosm for the— or. or you know, a representation of the culture at large. This, this notion of family is the cradle of the world's misinformation that, that Murray says, which I think is, you know, a wonderful line. And it's so this notion of, you know, you have the kids going a mile a minute, like a radio that's just been left on. And they're full of facts and and thoughts. And it is, you know, of course, it's like a kind of white noise in the movie, but it's also a a form of you know there is communication in in there there is warmth there is connection even in the disconnection and you know that, and and then when you bring the choreography into it and the sort of motion you know you you look at uh, taking like say the, the very early scene in the movie where they're making breakfast and they're all talking and it's both an introduction to the family but it's also an introduction this this tone this this movement this way of talking dialogue as kind of music in a way it's also telling the story of, of that bed and the pill and what's going on, to, on underneath this 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 subterranean story which is of course what's being hidden in all of this movement and talk and i i'm i was very drawn to that of how that's how these rituals and strategies and routines that we we are both complicit in and victim to. I mean, there are things that have been sort of established for us in the world that we find ourselves participating in. And then there's, there's the things we do at home that, that give life meaning, you know, or seem to give life meaning that are both beautiful and joyful. The dance of the supermarket in a sense embodies that, but they also become distraction and, or can become distraction and, and, and a barrier between us and maybe a, kind of more honest, complete, fuller life. And you see that in the marriage between Jack and Babette. So I I, I I, think certainly all of those things, those those sorts of themes are are not inconsistent with the work I've done in the past and the things that I've written, you know, that my original material. But I was interested in how it worked in a bigger sense here too, how it became a representation, as I said, of, of, of the culture and how we're doing that in much bigger ways. The way, you know, in DeLillo, of course, it's all in there. It's with the radio and the television because we're hearing these things from the outside. We're seeing where these things are coming from too, why we're echoing thoughts and facts and, and how we're, you know, both the comfort in having some outside source give us meaning to something that seems to have no meaning. Uh, whether it's true or not, it's just comforting to have somebody tell us what it is.
0: And that culture that you mentioned, the, the sort of, I suppose, slightly warped, media-saturated vision of American society that we see in white noise, in which, you know, families crowd around the TV to watch plane crashes and things like that. How do you describe that? And, and what do you see as being the relationship between the America of today and, you know, the, the sort of cranked version of it that we see in the film. Is it is it kind of is there a sort of element of a cautionary tale that um that's embedded in White Noise and Don's novel that like that's where we're headed if certain impulses in society aren't kind of curbed? Like how do you, how do you kind of sum up the, the world that this family inhabit?
1: I mean, I think we're there already. It would be cautionary. <laughs> it would be cautionary <laughs> maybe when the book when the book came out, maybe it was cautionary. I, I don't think I, I think it's in our rear view now. I mean I mean, the Internet just it it maybe makes it less pointed as standing around the TV watching a plane crash. I mean, that's a more it's a more satirical version of it. Um, But, you know, of course, DeLillo is writing in a world where you can change channels and you can watch a plane crash on the news and then you can turn to a sitcom on Channel 4. We live in a world where we can we can watch them simultaneously, you know, and do I mean this Bo Burnham song it's it's everything what does he say everything
0: a little bit of everything all of the time
1: yeah all of the time yeah exactly it's, it's um a more innocent version of it and when when you only have because technology hadn't you know gotten to the place where it is now which Delillo also talks about I mean, this sort of I mean Babette says when she's at the Boy Scout camp um says she's talking about the the latest innovation that's that fighting the toxic cloud and how scared it makes her. And she says, the greater the scientific advance, the more scared I get. You know, I think there, there is something that, you know, Don was really onto also about technology and as it advances what it does to us and the fear that it creates. I, I think um, we're past the cautionary tale part of it.
0: Hey, this is Al. Just jumping in to tell you about two of our great sponsors this week breaking into hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing convoluted thing fortunately screencraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of hollywood screencraft has everything for your writing journey from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team these guys offer the best screenwriting competitions designed to help your talent shine featuring judges that really know their genre, from top literary reps to Oscar-winning screenwriters. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of ScreenCraft. Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out ScreenCraft today. Visit ScreenCraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from Arc Studio Pro. Screenwriting to me is all about immersion. I want to stay immersed in that dreamy fantasy like state while I weave my story and craft my characters. I don't want to be distracted by anything and I certainly don't want to be thinking about text formatting. Arc Studio Pro understands that. It's so intuitive. It has a minimal and dare I say beautiful interface that allows me to stay completely focused on the story I'm trying to tell. To take your screenwriting to the next level, visit arcstudiopro.com forward slash script where you can either download a free version or get $30 off a pro account to unlock its full host of amazing features. Use the code FRIENDS at checkout to get that discount. That's arcstudiopro.com forward slash script Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Um, I'm intrigued by how your process did or didn't change, kind of moving into adapting someone else's material for the first time. Um, just so I can get a baseline for how you normally write before we maybe talk about how different it was adapting. Am I right in thinking that you often start your films with with snippets of dialogue that that's your seed and you build out characters, worlds, and plots from there? How does your process typically work when you're not yeah in in the process of adaptation?
1: It's different for every movie and every script. Dialogue is is certainly a way in, often for me, or one of the ways in. I. I I hear people talking and I I follow that and I follow a kind of chain of conversation. And that's something I've always done, I think, from Kicking and Screaming onward. It's the way of writing myself into not only character, but story and, and some kind of understanding of what it is I'm getting at. It's like writing is interesting that way. You come into something with a kind of... Often you have a feeling about it, of a, of, of, a situ, of a scene or a character or there's a line you've overheard that for whatever reason strikes you as funny or a line I find myself writing that for whatever reason it's phrased a way that is different than I would have normally phrased it and that, then the reply to that is influenced by whatever that phrase is. So it's, I suppose, a kind of improvisation with myself uh that 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 helps me in in, into whatever it is now that usually coincides with having something you know something else that i that i want to um address i mean take marriage story for example it was i wanted to write about the the process of divorce the the, the, you know, that on one level, and this is again going to talking about, you know, sort of when the world feels unreal to you, um, you know, those times, divorce is another one. If, 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 you know, I think everyone who's been divorced recognizes this. It is, it's a trauma and it, it, your emotional life is, is in some sort of turmoil and, and your kind of perceptions, your balance, everything is off. And, you know, because, I mean, by design, you're disrupting familiarity. You're something you've grown very accustomed to and very familiar with. If you have children, it's complicated, you know, a thousandfold. It's all thrown up in the air and with uncertainty. And, you know, so all the things that we, the things we know to expect, you know, we go to work, we come home, there's our family, all of that suddenly is up for grabs and, and it's going to change. And you have that going simultaneously with this l- legal process, something that is you know, run by professionals who uh, have studied this law and have ways they work within this system that is both sensical and nonsensical at the same time. So you're thrown into a kind of kafka-esque world while at the same time you're dealing with an emotional kafka-esque world (laughs) and i i thought well that to me i felt like i hadn't quite seen in a movie and was was interesting to me and i wanted it was something personal to me something i'd gone through and i wanted to tell that story now that also then coincided with writing these characters and writing these dialogues and and starting to understand the people it, you know and then I'm also writing about different locations I'm thinking well okay this is part is in New York and this part is in Los Angeles and then that becomes a different way in and now I'm writing environment and thinking about well what does the environment do to you and okay what are their jobs and what is that and and I'm learning all of these things as I'm writing and then going back and revising and in, in as I start to understand more so it's and and I tend to write in a way where I I like to revise as I go. I edit this way too because I don't like to get too far ahead of myself and like write a hundred and twenty page script and then go back and rewrite from page one. I I I might have I have many things that I know I want to get to, and I might have some scene lists and things that I know. Okay, I'm gonna ultimately we're gonna get to this scene in the courtroom, or we're gonna get to this um, this moment here. Uh, where she's going to tie his shoe or, you know, things that were ideas I had. Now, it doesn't mean that those things all stay, because once I keep revising and understanding it more and working, sometimes I arrive at those moments and they don't work anymore. They don't, they're not telling the story anymore. They're telling an older story that helped get me to the place to you know help me understand earlier pieces and now are no longer relevant and so those things get cut, but sometimes they stay. sometimes they feel sometimes I understand why I had them in there to begin with oh, this is what this is about. this is why I wrote this. Um, the opening a marriage story, which is they're writing these sort of tributes to one another and we we experience them visually and and then we find out that this is something that's an exercise in a with a mediator in their divorce. And I wrote those in part to understand the characters to, cause it was a way to, dis- to look at the characters through the other's eyes. And so, but of course once it was in there and once it then took on this function in the movie, it helped me go forward. And it also helped me much later in the movie because then I was well, what if we return to these letters? You know, what if that came back, you know, things like that, which again are not, you know they become good story moments or good movie moments but they're they only you only get to them by doing something doing the earlier part or doing another part or so you know all this is to say is there's no one way to do it and every script provides a different challenge um i mean i'm writing something now which it's the first time in a while where i really don't know where i'm going with it and that's scary and thrilling at the same time so I can go down. I can I can write 50 pages and then take them out and go back, you know, (laughs) and go back to, you know, an earlier part and start again because I can feel like, you know, I took the wrong lane. This is another long way of saying, I suppose I have ways that I do this, but I also remain open to the fact that I'm an amateur each time I'm doing it. You know, you're 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 a beginner with this movie all the time, every time. It's like the last movie doesn't give you, you can't use the stuff from the last movie. And and when you finish them, they often feel like I look back and think like, how did I do that? That's, you know, I mean, somebody, a friend of mine that wrote me, they'd just shown the squid and the whale to their uh, teenage child and they quoted something of the movie back to me and and and, and they were seeing it in a way of, as a part of the whole and as a kind of something that really worked for them in terms of like the way it was phrased and the way the scene played out. And I was impressed that I had figured that out, <laughs> you know, looking <laughs> back at that. I thought, well, um, I'm glad I arrived at that, you know, because it's like they're all they're all smarter and wiser than you are. The scripts, you know, the, the, the work, the movies, they, they, they have to be. I always feel a little bit like a, a fraud in trying to even talk about how I got there or what I did because maybe fraud's not the right way or a piker or something. It's like the the movie's better than me. I mean, in 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 a way, it's like it's it's wiser, it's more sensitive, it's more emotionally mature. It's it's and that's because the process allows for that. You know, it's like it, it's it's like you're aware of what it can do better than you. And so you try to follow that. You know, I I, um, was reading a, uh, George Saunders has this wonderful book about, um, you know this book? Swimming Uh, in the
0: Rain in the Pond. Yeah, Pond in the Rain. Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) Pond in the Rain, yeah. There's, There's a, I think it's Milan Kandera. He has a quote about this very, this very thing that, about writer's, Writers not maybe saying writers shouldn't be representatives, you know, for the culture, but they should. He's like, I'd go further and say they're not representatives for themselves. That they're that they are the the work is wiser than they are, Um, and it's. He talks about, um, I guess Tolstoy when he was writing Anna Karenina was much more critical of Anna and essentially her death was a kind of punishment uh, you know, for her immorality. And, but as he wrote it, of course the novel is very different from that. The novel is very sympathetic and understanding of her, but he said, I don't, he, he says, I wouldn't say that Tolstoy, I, he's like, I don't think Tolstoy got wiser or more uh, generous as he, uh, as a person, as he wrote it. But what he did is he followed the train of the novel and wrote the best novel. And I think that's, Really, so smart about writing, it's it's and, and movie making. You know, to go further is that if if you're good at it, you're it's it's going to always be better expression than what you than than, than what you can do as yourself.
0: Yeah, I guess a great encapsulation of that, um, which also ne- leads us quite neatly into sort of some of the key scenes from the film um, in Greenberg. You, you opened that film with a scene in which um, Greta's character's in a car. And she's attempting to merge in traffic. And she asks, are you going to let me in? And um, you described in a lecture once how Greta once told you that the openings of your movies tend to encapsulate the narrative journey that audiences are about to go on. Um, and this, this was news to you. Um, the squid and the whale obviously begins with the line, mom and me versus me and dad. And that's that movie in a nutshell. In the case of Greenberg, that line, are you going to let me in? That was a movie ultimately, thematically, about letting people in. And it kind of came to you as a shock that, right. there, was that uh, yeah, there was that synergy there and that perhaps your, your synapses were firing in a way you hadn't uh, been, been conscious of. Do you feel like the beginning right. of White Noise, in which Don Cheadle's character Murray gives this speech about the history and primal splendor of car crashes in American cinema, th- does that make a similar declaration about the movie that audiences are about to see?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think, and it was something I was more conscious of, which was many, much of what he says is taken from the book, but it's not presented as an actual lecture and it doesn't have the visual accompaniment. And I felt it was very much, I mean, this, this notion that car crashes are, in, in movies are this sort of representation of the sort of American ingenuity in, in entertainment, that, that our appreciation of it is removed from the actual event itself. So like he says, like Thanksgiving and the 4th of July, you know, which are, of course, come from all this brutality, but we don't celebrate that. We're celebrating yeah. the fact that we, you know, love fireworks and love Turkey, and, and we're celebrating this country. And, you know, it's an obviously an incredibly ironic, brilliantly satirical thing of Don's. Um, but I felt the sort of excitement in a movie of doing that where you could actually watch these car crashes and watch crashes that have already been filmed and done throughout the years and of course you put it in a lecture and in a college and then it's like you're they're also setting up the college and you're setting up that world but I felt like it was a, a, a very good way to kind of set the tone for the movie and also set the tone for the audience of what they're going to watch i mean they're you know, on, on one hand, you're putting it in a specific world—a college where this is the sort of thing that's taught—and then in another way, suggesting a way that one might want to watch this movie, so that when you see a car crash later in the movie, or you see a train crash, or you see that that you're you're watching it, you know, both as part of the the, the actual narrative, but you're also seeing it in light of this of this lecture and this. And, and, and in this other light. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it, it, another thing I would say about it, too, is that, you know, when you then see the the family, you know, a few minutes later, you're introduced to the family in the kitchen and they're moving around and they're near misses with each other as they sort of essentially dance around one another, making their breakfast and having their conversations. Is it also, I felt, suggests this idea of, you know, are, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's completed at the end with the dance, but how we sort of go through life too, you know, in these sort of avoiding uh, collision and, you know, and, and, you know, and then, and then occasionally we do collide. And is there catharsis sometimes in a collision? And it also, of course, is this notion of death, which hangs over the whole movie, which is we develop our lives so that death remains abstract, or we don't want to think about it. we, put it out of our minds we think oh well we often believe on some level well but not me you know i'm gonna somehow find a way to get around this thing and uh but then strangely or maybe not so strangely we are compelled to you know we, we put it in our entertainment we watch i mean how many disaster movies superhero movies that destroy cities and, you know, you've seen New York get destroyed so many times in movies and, and, and it's create some sort of pleasure uh, at the same time. So, you know, what is that? What is our, why are we both drawn to it in, in our entertainment in ways that we're afraid to acknowledge it in our, in our lives. Um, and, you know, that's also implicit in Murray's lecture.
0: As you say, the uh, the sort of talk at the beginning about about crashes that very much sets up the, the crash that's going to be an inciting incident, of course, of, of sorts in 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 this film. Um, there's a train wreck that sets in motion the toxic airborne event that we see. You intercut between that imminent disaster as it unfolds, and a kind of academic rap battle, I suppose, for lack of lack of a better phrase, um, between Jack and Murray. Um, so. Jack is a professor of Hitler studies, the study of Adolf Hitler, and Murray, his, his kind of uh, colleague in academia, his specialty subject is Elvis. And yeah, you juxtapose these seemingly two unconnected subjects, Hitler and Elvis, um, with this scene of sort of, yeah, twisted metal and kind of, ca- well, catastrophe. What what were those things kind of coming together in that scene to express Noah? And and what was the significance to you of uh, of yeah the role of kind of Hitler in this film in regards to to Jack's job? Yeah,
1: well, I mean, yeah, and that's also that you in the book you don't see the crash. The crash is happens whatever the the equivalent of off camera is in a book off page. <laughs> yes. uh, um, it, 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 it's not. It's not. Um, it, it was actually when I. I mean, this is a. Kind of good example of, of how screenwriting works, I, guess, I suppose, is, is the crashes by by putting that lecture at the beginning of the movie. I felt like I needed to then show a crash to to continue that thread, to to sort of answer it in some way. So that gave me the idea to include the crash and show the crash, you know, because I felt well. Also, that's such a movie thing: crashes, you know, and and we've already establish that, that led me then to think, well, what, when does it happen? Well, it should happen then with, in conjunction with the Hitler-Elvis lecture. And so, and with Jack, you know, then I had Jack kind of, you know, which is in the novel is so Jack takes over the lecture in some way, he kind of, uh, and evangelizes in some way about, about Hitler. And, uh, and, uh, if you can use that those two terms together maybe I shouldn't but but uh, it became a kind of summoning in a way it was like we Adam and I talked a lot about that it was that it was in a sense almost like a you know the, the sequences you've seen in movies where you know it's like the, you know I don't know who, who the you know the witch or wizard is chanting and then something you know the monster is being created at the same time somewhere else and I can't think of an actual movie that does that, but I feel like I've seen it several <laughs> <whole> times. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, um, so I, that was I worked, we work with David Newman, the choreographer, on that whole sequence as well. I mean, that's a very choreographed sequence. And um, so that as he, as Jack kind of takes over, he is sort of summoning death. He's bringing death forward. And something that's been, you know, that he's been carrying around in his unconscious and, and, you know, he's sort of at a, like, again, at kind of a low, a low simmer is now coming to a boil and he uh, you know, I, 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 I link it to the dream, you know, the dream is, you know, it's sort of him seeing death in his room and, and death climbing into bed with him, which of course is also where his wife should be. And, and uh, so that he's, you know, our, you know, when we dream, of course, our unconscious is trying to bring things to the surface that we often don't want to, you know, acknowledge consciously or we have difficulty acknowledging them consciously. And and so here, in a sense, I felt like he is both willingly and, and, uh, and unwittingly summoning death and bringing it forward because he knows on some level it, it, it has to. That, of course, then gives you this sort of movie- Movie moments, which are were, you know the cross cutting and and you know chore- we choreographed Adam's movements to work with the movements of the train and the truck as well, so that things would it, it would work as a kind of call and response or a dance and 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 be of a piece.
0: And um, you know, we we should talk as well about Babette's arc in this movie, like the the sort of portion of the film in which. You know our characters are existing under a literal cloud of fear. Good, good year for that, by the way, with with Jordan Peele's Nope as well. Um, it, that that section of the film kind of gives way to this this sort of drug deal conspiracy plot, um, which is much more domesticated and set inside the family's home. Uh, you know, White Noise. Both in your telling of it, and obviously in Don's, it, it seems a story in which there's a refusal to confront our mortality. That results in an escape through through TV, through material consumption, through chemical cures. Is, is that kind of what Babette's arc is is intended to express? Like, what what was your having having lived with this novel since your teens, and now having kind of grappled with it in in bringing it to the screen? What's your read of of that second portion of the film?
1: Well and 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 it should be i suppose pointed out too is is the movie you know her role in the second half of the movie is is changed from the novel in the novel she doesn't go to the motel she's not part right, of the
0: yeah.
1: the attempted killing of Mr. Gray and the German nuns and that whole section so and i i that was something and this is perhaps a a, a further answer to your question about where this movie connects with my my other work is i was interested in seeing this and thinking about babette's character i became interested in, in seeing the movie as as a kind of comedy of remarriage you know that beginning of the movie that in some sense exists as the kind of projection of jacks i mean she's she seems okay but we see we of course see that there's something going on with her i mean we um you know, we we know she's taking the pill. There are comments here or there. We see her driving away, and of course Denise is on to her and has this idea. And we see how Jack kind of brushes it aside. And so she 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 lives for the first half of the movie in some way as a as more of a mystery. And in the novel, of course, you're in his head more, so she's always a kind of projection of his. Um, and this went to as I was writing it. And, and thinking of Greta playing it was was the necessary shift that has to happen when you're when now that she is a you know she's Greta she's she's a you know uh, somebody we watch and respond to it's not it, it, it's not someone we have in our heads and are thinking about through Jack's description of her from like in the novel this is now somebody this is a real character in the movie so and, and of course, also thinking, well, Greta, I love working with Greta, and she's so, so, such a wonderful actress, and sort of thinking of things that she could do. And so this notion of this sort of sequence that comes in the third part of the movie is um, where she tells Jack, Babette tells Jack what has been going on, which is this uh, epic confession scene, which is, is in the book. But in the movie, I think it it does something different in that because we're watching now this wonderful actor tell the story and, and the, 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 emotion that accompanies it. And, you know, on one hand, it's a totally bonkers thing she's saying, you know, yeah. It, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's stuff of science fiction and, and, but they're playing it very human, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's quite an emotional sequence. And I was, I really liked that idea of doing something that would be both strange and other And also very human. And it's something we see, I feel like David Lynch does so wonderfully sometimes, too. It's like where, you know, I remember Twin Peaks when Laura Palmer's parents find out that she's been killed. It's like the emotion is so strong. So it's like it's very, it's really treated seriously, you know, even though everything else is so other and dreamlike. So anyway, I, I so I mean, Greta always described in that sequence. It, she said it, it's almost like that bet drops into her own body, like that she's been living kind of outside herself for the much of the movie. And here she, in in some ways, becomes more herself. And and I think that's another theme of the movie and part of the, the story of the movie is this becoming our becoming more ourselves and how do you become more yourselves and what are, what are the sort of ugly, unhappy things you need to, to open yourself up to to maybe make yourself, to, to, to help you know, balance and complete yourself in some way. I mean, not that we ever complete ourselves. Uh, and, and that's something also I've always been interested in my movies is this, these notions we have of ourselves and the people around us and then the, the, the realities of that and, and the difficult work it takes to get there. I mean, it's why real therapy is, you know, is, is such a long-term commitment because it's not... If these things don't happen... I mean, in a movie, they can happen in a big emotional scene, but in life, they, it's a real... It's like a blow-dripping faucet, you know? Um, yeah. And so... Um, so, but that's... You know, I think I see Jack and Bebette at the end of the movie. It's like now they can begin to try to... to real, now the marriage can begin in some way. You know, it's like they've been living together but apart. And the thing that kept them apart was actually it was something that they shared. It was death, and you know this sort of fear of death. It, it both separated them, and then it also, in the end, it links them. You know, and, and and I find that very moving and emotional and romantic idea that, that 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 these sort of ugly secrets we keep from each other or can keep from each other are actually the things that might actually bring us together. I mean, and and I do that visually in the movie with with uh, the Mr. Gray character and the shopping cart as they're They're on the gurneys and he's between them as they're being rolled down the emer- emergency room. And then he's moved away and they're pushed together. Yeah. And I thought that was kind of lovely idea that, that 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 here's this, you know, this character who represents death, who they've tried to kill, which is an absurd notion. And or he's tried to kill and you can't kill him. He's still alive, he's still out there, but you have to go on living.
0: yeah, it's a perfect note to end the film on and um well, I guess it's a it's a good note to end this episode on as well as well Noah um I'll, I'll close out by asking though now that you've conquered your first adaptation, like looking to the future, are there other authors who you'd love to adapt? I know you know you mentioned George Saunders as someone you have a lot of respect for. he's a friend of the show um can you see yourself taking on one of his stories or are there any other authors um? Yeah, I'm I'm curious sort of how you see the next chapter of your career from here unfolding because of course your next project that we'll be seeing on screen is Barbie which you co-wrote with Greta. Um yeah, I'm curious to know that, that, that those are two projects in a row now that represent kind of markedly different types of movies than than we're used to getting from you. Um yeah, th- what what do you think about the sort of the the years ahead and sort of what you might take on next? Are we going to continue to see more of these departures and Will, will adaptation be something we, we see again?
1: I'm just full of surprises. Um, <laughs> no, I <laughs> I, uh, I can only be in the time I'm in, really. I can't, I don't know. I've always made movies that, like, as I said before, that that that, that are connected to the sort of livest wire in my brain, you know, the thing that seems like it has the most excitement, electricity, the, the kind of clearest, you know, a way of expressing something or, or many things, or that i have been preoccupied, or with, or feel, or you know, events in my life that I've wanted to try to make sense of, or and I'm this, and 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 this, the, the the resulting script and movie are just the best way I know how to do it at that time, and um, and in that way, as you were saying earlier, I don't, you know, white noise, I, you know, it's 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 different in certain ways because it's an adaptation, but feels it's a very personal movie for me because it's 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 very connected like i said it's it's an, you know it was it was my kind of answer to the the time the last few years so i don't know i'm just i will continue doing it the way i've been doing it which is it, the only you know it, is, is making things that are meaningful to me and uh barbie was kind of wonderful you know it, it was also during the pandemic or the sort of i suppose the early what we sort of think of as the main part of the pandemic that we were i wrote white noise and then we wrote barbie and they they, they in a funny way they kind of relate to each other and certainly in ways that we see but i don't you know we'll see if other people recognize them um, <laughs> but um but that feels very personal to me too and and the collaboration with greta which is is something I, I feel lucky to have and be able to you know um, I mean white noise is a collaboration as well because she's she's in it and also you know she her something I spoke to her about she read many of the drafts and you know they sort of been so I don't know is the answer I mean i'm I'm writing an original an, an original movie now and you know I, I I'll, I'll always do that um I mean I you know adaptations I mean it's its when i when I read anything, I think at some point when I'm reading it, I will think of a movie like what is a movie version of the scene or if you know some scenes might feel very much like movies scenes other scenes don't and you think, oh that could be an interesting thing to do but I don't go past that it's just the way my mind works it's just a, it's a kind of musing and but with white noise i I took it all the way. So (laughs) we'll see. Um, I mean, George wrote um, a a really, I thought a really wonderful script of civil war land that Ben still was going to make. And I read that years ago and I still would love to see that movie get made. I think he,
0: he really, I think he really
1: captured a kind of, you know, movie equivalent of what he does so brilliantly, you know, in literature
0: absolutely well fingers crossed for a collaboration then um, I'll let you go man it's been such a fun hour chatting with you um, congratulations again on this film I'm going to be it's going to be rattling around in my brain for a long time and I am in turn I'm going to be dancing in Tesco's for, for a while I, I suspect
1: <laughs> yeah you, if you started I'm sure people will follow
0: the legacy the impact of this film all right well thank you again so much Noah it's been an absolute pleasure
1: yeah thank you it was fun
0: You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Thanks for tuning in, we'll see you next time.